meditation. It's such a beautiful song. And it was a little counterintuitive to start there with Fannie Lou Hamer because you know she brought that fire. <laughs> but I'm saying the fire got to come from somewhere. <laughs> I'm saying and the yeah, fire right. got to come from your absolute connection with turning in and, and spirit. And uh, I have been so moved by this woman's life, um, my entire life, but particularly the last 10 years as um as you and I have started to build Girl Trek. I mean, she was a model. So um this is such an important conversation for us to be having. Uh just a few weeks out from one of the most important elections um we've ever seen in our generation and arguably in American history. And so today we wanted to dedicate Monday, the first day of week two, um, to the one and only Fannie Lou Hamer. And before we begin, I want to personally thank and congratulate every single woman who did the first five days of Black History Boot Camp. Your pledge, your commitment, your your daily lacing up, your way out of no way, your on this rock I stand this, everything that it took for you to get outside and care for yourself is not only radical, but it's necessary. Black women living is radical. And we understand that actually taking time for ourselves outside of the the labor that it takes to that it took to build this country, but really taking our time back for ourselves is really where the revolution begins and it's where the discipline begins. That's absolutely necessary for us to live. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing the work. We're so proud of you. So week one's down, you are a street soldier. Week two is beginning with no one better than Fanny Lou Hamer. Vanessa, why do you love Fanny Lou Hamer? First of all, she looks just like my grandma, <laughs> like or or she has like the demeanor <laughs> of does. my grandma, like in every she photo, does. she kind of looks like she maybe has on a house coat, her hand on her hip, she got her purse, which my grandma always had full of Luden's cough drops, and like a rubbing alcohol to rub, like way before hand sanitizer, my grandmother's black purse had some rubbing alcohol in it. So Fannie Lou Hamer just reminds me <laughs> of like, like the practical black grandmas who had Luden's cough drops in their purse and who showed up like, you ain't, I ain't playing with you today. Listen, well, Fannie Lou Hamer, more than anybody in history, 
has taught me how to show up as my complete and full self. And if you don't get anything else out of today's call, there is someone listening who may not feel good enough or pretty enough or smart enough or polished enough or um, educated enough or wealthy enough um, or motivated enough to join in on the liberation fight for all, for our rights, which is what is happening right now in America. Do be confused by that. You might not feel like you have enough to give. You might be tired. You might be like me. I'm anemic. I've been feeling fatigued. You just might feel like, listen, Samuel Hamer was great, but I don't got it. They might be like me today. Okay. First of all, I'm wearing some new Tavis handles and they feel like air right now. as I'm walking. I ain't gonna lie. They just feel so good. And my Tavis sandals, um, they match my coat epoxy fanny pack. And so I feel real fly. But as I was going to walk on day six of Black History Boot Camp, I was like, this must be the least blackest revolutionary outfit I've ever seen somebody wear. Like these Tavis sandals and this fanny pack I got on. So you might not feel black enough, but you are black enough. I'm just here to tell you black women. You, you definitely <laughs> are black enough. I was just like, what do I have on? And Vanessa, I have on maybe the blackest outfit you could possibly wear. Have on like a house coat, like a dress, like a like the mumus that um, aunties used to wear. And it's flowing yes. in the wind. And I got it from the slave castles. <laughs> I can't make this up. I got it from Cape Coast in the slave castles. And it's made out of African print. And it's really pretty. Um, ah, so you are good enough. And I'm, and you're good enough if not if for no other reason than you logged in today and you took an action toward your healthiest, most fulfilled life. That makes you good enough. Um, so Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer was born in Mississippi. She was born the 20th um, child. Her parents, they were farmers and having a lot of babies um, was practical. <laughs> Actually, it was practical and necessary sometimes because um, people needed help on the farm. And so she was the 20th baby. Um, and it, maybe where some of her fire came from. She had to fight. She had to fight for everything she had, probably. Um, she was born in Mississippi and she grew up. One of the, Vanessa, one of the facts that just threw me for a loop, she grew up farming her entire life and she had limited education, but was almost a genius when it came to the Bible. And so when it came time to relate the civil rights movement to the Bible, like she wowed people because she had such a command for scripture. But one of the things that really fascinated me is that she was sharecropping up into the age of 44. She has, she was living on a plantation Uh and sharecropping up into the age of 44. And she had already met her man. His name is Pat Hamer. They were in love. They got, they stayed married for 18 years. And, um, but she hadn't even got involved in anything political, any civil rights movement, anything until she was 44. And when she was 44 years old, she, which is just such for anybody out there who's just like, you didn't get it in when you was in college. Daniel Hamer was 44. And at 44, she didn't even know that black people had secured the right to vote. So she went and heard some, you know, some northerners who came down who were a part of the kind of new burgeoning civil rights movement. They were at a church and they were talking and she was like, 
Wait, we could we could allow on a Tuesday people. night, Morgan. There's one yeah. there's one part of the story I always remember is that it was on a Tuesday night that she was in the church, and so I just want to shout out all those prayer warriors who they don't just be there on Sunday. They be there on Monday night. They be there on, on Tuesday night. night. They be on a Tuesday night. And she did, and that was something else that struck me. She didn't even realize that we had secured the vote, and she was like, "Hold on, wait a minute. I, what? <laughs> right?" So she was like, oh, put me down, write me down. I'm about to go vote, write me down. So a handful of people went out to go and vote, and it was super dangerous. I mean, when they went in to vote, they were called all kind of niggas. They, was called, they, they were like, what are y'all niggas doing in here? Literally verbatim. And she was like, well, ma'am, we came to vote. And they, were, they gave right. them all kind of poll tests, all kind of literacy tests, all sorts of ridiculous stuff down in very, very racist Mississippi during the time. This is around 1962. So then what happened is she couldn't vote. And so she had to come back in 30 days because she, she failed the test. She didn't pass that test. She came back in 30 days. And then the man whose plantation she lived on got word that she was trying to vote. And he told her, stop this immediately or you cannot live on my land. Mississippi is not ready for this. She said, I, I'm not going to vote for you. I'm going to vote for you. Right. And she continued to do it. He kicked her off the land, and she went and lived with a civil rights organizer, a woman by the name of Tucker, and she went and lived in her house, and her husband still had to work the land, so he still had to stay on the plantation. Um, they were free, mind you, but sharecropping is real, and it's economic slavery, and we knew that. So he still had to work. So one night, though, he told um, his daughters – now, this is something – and let's talk about her personal life for a second. Fanny Please, because there's a photo of her and her yeah. man. Morgan, that yes. it really, I even have it on my own Instagram feed. I posted it maybe a couple months ago on Vanessa Trex, if you got, and I'll reshare it. But there is a photo of her and her man that for me just, it put everything into perspective that Fannie Lou Hamer was a woman who wanted to slow dance with her man, cook meals by candlelight, <laughs> have love. Like, I'm just saying, like, we, she didn't get to have that. And yet you could see in that picture that that's who, that's who they were. And it's like, the things we have to do. No, they had a real connection. Yeah. Yeah. They had a real spiritual connection and actually they wanted to have children. They met when she was, when she was, you know, 18, 19, they got married immediately. They were in love. They wanted to have children, but Fannie Lou Hamer went in for a routine surgery, like to get tumors removed, fibroids removed. And they gave her a hysterectomy without her knowing a forced hysterectomy. And it was a part of a program in Mississippi to stop the pop, it was sterilization to stop the black population. And they called it a Mississippi appendectomy um, as a joke. But women would go in for routine procedures and come out with no uterus. And this happened to Fannie Lou Hamer. So she was never able to conceive children um, because this white doctor had given her hysterectomy without her knowledge and certainly without her consent. And so being the trooper that she is, being the fearless warrior that she is, she adopted two girls. She adopted two girls, and tragically, one of those girls actually also died because of medical malpractice because they would not see her because of her mother's activism in the hospital, and she died. Uh, I think her appendix erupted. She died. Um, and so she had a tragic, tragic family life. She ended up adopting other children in the community over the years, but, um, but she and her husband also always had this like, spiritual connection, and one of her daughters says that one night, when they were still living um, on this on the white man's land, and Fannie Lou Hamer had to move out away from her family and live with an activist, that her dad was like, "We gotta go get your mama," 
and the daughter was like, what do you mean? And he was like, we got to go get her or something's not right. He went and got her that night. And that night, that house of the civil rights activists got shot up like 16 times by white supremacists. Um, and there's something so beautiful to me that she was rescued by her husband in that moment. Um, other people were killed uh, during that time. She talks about it in her, in her um, speech to, uh, at the DNC that we'll listen to in a little bit. But Vanessa, she continued on. She continued on. And Fannie Hamer um, began to um, travel all over the world and all over the country. Um, and one of the things that happened was when she was in that church, uh, or when, she w- when they first started taking people on buses to um, go to vote, Bob, about a couple of episodes ago, Bob Moses uh-huh. was this highfalutin, like, like Ivy League educated black man who came down to organize with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And when they were taking people on buses, people were really scared to vote. If you can imagine, like you're living in Mississippi and uh, there's a lot of white people in SNCC for, for free Freedom Summer. So like, you know, a white, a white guy from Harvard comes and knocks on your door and you're in Mississippi in the terror of Mississippi. And he's like, I'm coming to register voters with the student right. coordinating committee with, with Freedom Summer or something like that. They were like, mm-hmm, we're, we're, give me the paper, right? And they, they closed the door, right. but nobody was showing up. So people were signing up and stuff, but nobody was actually going to vote. So finally, they had gotten a handful of people to go, on, go and vote, and Fannie Lou Hamer was one of them. And when they were on the bus, people were scared, and, and like it was noticeably like um, tense on the bus, and Fannie Lou Hamer started singing. She started singing This Little Light of Mine. Yeah. And as she started singing yeah. This Little Light of Mine, people, people started to get the kind of courage and will that they needed in order to go and stand up and vote. So when, so when it was time to go down, when really stuff was about to happen, Bob Moses remembered that woman and they said, go find that woman who sang on the bus. And they knew it was Fannie Lou Hamer. And she got catapulted into national leadership because of her groundedness, because of her connection to God, because of her strategic mind, her will, and her laser sharp wit. She was hilarious. She was a great spokesperson. And she she got catapulted onto the national stage. So let's talk about the actual act of resistance, the actual moment that yeah. Fannie Lou Hamer became forged in the minds and hearts of all Americans. It was the Democratic National Convention. And Without, listen, it's a long story, but all you need to know is that the Democrats in Mississippi were racist as all get out. They were segregationists. There was no black Democrats that were in the, ca- the caucus. Um, they, they weren't even supporting the Democratic um, president at the time. They were supporting the Republican president. They were super, super conservative. So they walk into the Democratic National Convention, and they're all white, and they're all racist. So before that, they, SNCC and um, Fannie Lou Hamer and all of the Freedom Summer activists had come up with a strategy to create their own party that was diverse and that represented the people of Mississippi. She was a part what? of that. It was called the Mississippi Freedom they, Democratic Party. You mean they were party. breaking out of the two-party system that we all need to Listen. reconsider it to vote? But okay, that's another conversation. Listen. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, they marched up in that convention and demanded to be seated. They said, you will not seat this all-white racist caucus of, of people from Mississippi. They don't represent us. So it was like a big deal. And they were, and um, it was being televised and everybody. So two people got the chance to talk, and Fannie Lou Hamer was one of them. And Fannie Lou Hamer marched to the front of that caucus with her purse. And she put it on the table. 
And right yeah. there, we already knew it was about to go down. We knew it was about we to go down. We already knew. She began to tell her story. First of all, Morgan, for the allies on the phone, we have to explain because we don't, first of all, if she put her purse on the floor, we already know it would have been some stuff like she wouldn't have been from the community. So I'm going to say, like, we can't trust you. She put her purse on the table because we don't put our purses on the floor. Don't play around. Okay, keep going. (laughs) Yeah. So she began to say her speech and I, and I'll, and I'm going to actually play her entire speech. And the reason I'm going to play her entire speech today as we walk is for this reason. During her speech, Fannie Lou Hamer had already, everybody knew she was the most compelling voice of the civil rights movement. Everybody knew that through her efforts, she had rallied 60,000 people to vote in rural Mississippi, that people trusted her, they knew her, that she brought God into the situation and her fervor and, and, um, and candor um, made people trust her, right? We already knew that about her. The world was starting to see Fannie Lou Hamer. She was on every single network at the DNC. So she sat down, she adjusted her microphone, she got ready to tell the story of what happened to her when she went to vote. Her story was so compelling that everyone knew that the, the, DN, that the, that the Democratic National Convention was going to have to vote to seat these Americans so that they would have due process of the law, they could, they could have representation. They knew that was going to happen. And if that happened, the Mississippi caucus was good. They had already um, planned to walk out. And the president at the time, the U.S. president, Lyndon B. Johnson, was counting on the Southern vote um, for everything that he needed done. So he could not let that happen. So he interrupted Samer with a fake press conference in the middle of her testimony of being beaten down in a jail cell, trying to vote. He interrupted, he successfully interrupted. He kept, right. he kept, his press conference is so gibberish and ridiculous. It wasn't even, it wasn't, it was so ridiculous. But it backfired on him. Similar to how we were talking about yeah. Roots, how they tried to cancel us. It yeah. backfired. Yeah. Every single network that evening on Evening News, every single network aired Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony in full. And we want you to listen to her words. We want you to remember exactly what went down for you to have the right to vote. Because as a movement, we are going to organize this Black August. We are going to organize in September. We are going to organize in October so that we get our rights and we get the vote out. There is no way that we're going to mobilize a million Black women in Girl Trek and not absolutely collectively organize to make our voices heard and to make sure that everything that comes to kill Black women, every policy, um, every leader is voted out. So that we're going to listen to it today. But before we do that, we're just going to talk a little bit about Fannie Lou Hamer. And let me tell you, Vanessa, yeah. I was tired as hell this weekend. Okay. I yeah. was so exhausted. I was exhausted this weekend and I still had work to do. And I, yeah. and I worked Saturday and I worked Sunday and I got up this morning and I worked. And I just remember, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And she died. Vanessa, it was mm-hmm. nine years. She, yeah. she learned about, listen, she learned about um, the civil rights movement at 44. And she, start, yeah. and she organized for seven years. 
okay? Seven years. So she was um, 51 until she fell sick. She fell sick at 51, and she mm-hmm. couldn't do it anymore. And then she died Maria. at 59. Yeah. yeah. At 51, she fell sick after just seven years of organizing. She even traveled to Africa organized. I didn't even know that about her. She traveled to Africa. She said she had never seen black people um, running government before. And that's when she decided to run for Congress. She ran for Congress. She ran for the Senate, a successful run for the Senate. Um, She's just an amazing woman. She ran for Congress in Mississippi. She was an amazing woman. And at the end of her life, even when she wasn't on the road for the civil rights movement, she started a food co-op called the Freedom, what's it called? The Freedom Farm Collective or Cooperative, the Freedom Farm Cooperative. And in the Freedom Farm, because she said, listen, all the civil rights is good, but people in Mississippi still can't eat because of poverty. And she was like, so I'm going to feed them. And she said, I mean, white people shot at her, beat her all the way down. She said black people and white people from her farm, Vanessa, because that's the kind of resilience that God wants us to have. I really believe it. I really believe it. So I'm deeply inspired by the life of Fannie Lou Hamer. I hope that you are too. But Vanessa, here's the thing. When when is enough enough for the struggle? When do you give too much? Look, first of all, let me tell you. On most any given day, I'd be like close to tears about my own workload in life. And I'd just be like, God, don't give you more than you could carry in the day. And you just got to keep pushing. I then reflect usually on where I am at, and then I can name a hundred women who are carrying more than I am. And I'd be like, you definitely ain't got nothing to complain about. But that's a dangerous game, Morgan, because our, our playing field is so skewed, right? That the question is, when is enough for you? It's like, are you in your body, in your spirit, in your space enough to say, to know authentically when is enough for you and to feel like you can say, this is enough for me. I can't go on at this moment. Even back to our original conversation around Audre Lorde and self-care and community and, and trust that somebody else will pick up the burden. Like, I think it's an individual call because if we look at it as a collective, never, it will never be enough because so much of us have such a great capacity for doing work that when we measure up against each other, it just actually creates this, um, I think, unhealthy sense of um, need to do more and more. Yeah. You know, I was, I was trying to, um, I was trying to think about that question myself because I don't actually know how to, I feel guilty. I feel motivated. I feel, um, yeah, compelled, led to work hard because so many people have worked hard for us to be where we are. And I feel like we're right on the cusp, but I, on the cusp for generations and that right on the yeah. cuspness is a sort of like angst and stress that actually kills us early and I think you know I don't know I, I feel really emotional actually about it because I think the, I think the only way we can stop is if we collectively like make a pact that we're not yeah. going to work ourselves to death we're not actually going to work ourselves to death that actually us spending time us resting us laughing, us cooking good food for each other, us like circling our wagons, uh, which I think is racist uh, metaphor, but like us like really coming together in common cause and community. That I think that's the only way because if everybody out here is struggling and I listen, everywhere I go I see black women hustling and then I'm laid back doing yoga it feels crazy. It feels crazy. But here, I'm going to tell you about this, because I've been working on this. I'm going to tell you this, though. This is real. 
I truly believe that part of the reason you feel that way and part of the reason you feel guilty even is especially, and especially you, especially because you have a knowing and an understanding of how, of who sacrificed and how much people sacrificed for us to be in this moment, that it almost, there is also a sense of unworthiness of like, I don't deserve even this like moment of rest or this thing because so many people fought for me and I have to keep fighting and this thing. I think there is some of that also wrapped up in it. It's why we feel guilty. It is, it is an understanding of like your cousins and your aunties and their struggle in a moment where you don't have it. But that also is a lie, by the way. Um, we don't have to, we don't have to fight anymore, by the way. Fannie Lou Hamer fought enough for us. Harriet Tubman fought enough for us. Now, if we did nothing as a people but sit back and, and receive the inheritance of their labor, if, if we were in a just world, it would actually be okay. And it would probably delight our ancestors um, that we didn't have to work, by the way. So a little bit, even our mindset has to shift to where we are saying that, like, we deserve the, a level of abundance. We deserve this 30-minute walk and this rest. We deserve these things. And that the work of the movement um, will go on even if we're absent in that moment. We have to believe we even deserve it. I do deserve it. And I don't feel unworthy. I actually feel a deep calling. I feel like there is yeah. great suffering in the world right now. And I feel uniquely prepared to lead. And mm -hmm. that feels like... Um, it feels like a calling on my life in a way that I can't explain it. It doesn't feel like I'm, it's, it's not a knee jerk. When I work all day, every, like, it's not a knee jerk. It really is me and my calling. And mm -hmm. that means something. And so like, um, you know, Fanny Hamer said, you can pray until you, um, until you grow faint, but God ain't going to put it in your lap unless you do the work. And I believe that. I just don't want to die. Right. But when, when is the work? Right. That's what I'm saying. Cause when is the, cause if you're doing the work Monday through Friday, 12 to 12 and you do it, I'm just saying like, at some point you're going to have to rest. Like I'm telling you, this yeah. is your no, I know. At some point you're going to have to rest. I know. I know. But so this is, I mean, I think it's, I don't think it's just me. I think it's every woman who works in the church. I think it's every school teacher yeah. who's doing lesson plans on Sunday night. I think it's every mother who's just, you know, I think about like Amber on our team. She's like, right. her kids are doing like jazzercise on one day and cooking lessons. And like, Ugh. I'm just saying like, that is her, her calling is to raise some girl to like, I'm saying like that, that is God's But here's work, the trick. Actually, like here's the thing love. that you just put on. And if you really out, believe in a yeah, but if you really believe in abundance, you believe that you can be fueled to do that work. And I do. But hear and me out. But hear me out, Morgan. Hear work. me out. Hear me out. Hear me out, though, because this is important. But, and in fact, Fannie Lou Hamer died at 59. So I want to point this out because this is the calling on my life around even my grandmother and every other person. If you're not around to do the work, then that actually was a disservice to all the people and the community and your family and your baby girls and everybody. So, in fact, we have to do the work where we can preserve ourselves so that we could be here, actually even to experience the fruit of our work. That's part of it. So we're losing our greatest resources. Black women are dying like, 10 years younger than Asian women. Like, so I'm saying, how many more conversations could we have had with our loved ones around the table? How much more strategy did Fannie Wilhelmer have to give? How much more could you have to give? So I don't want you dying at 59. I don't want nobody else dying at 59. I know it is a calling on our lives. Also, and I don't trust me have all the answers, although I think the answer starts with a 30-minute walk a day. We must preserve ourselves also so that we can be here for a long time.
a long time, like a long time. Yeah, I want I'm that suggesting photo. that the two. Yeah, I'm suggesting that the two are not mutually exclusive. I'm suggesting that Harriet Tubman lived to be 92 years old because she was in her calling, her purpose, and she take, took care of herself. She gardened and she ate apple, fresh apples. So I'm saying, like, I think you can right. do both. I'm trying to learn how to do both because I don't want a long life of leisure when my people are struggling. I want to work hard. I want to get in the trenches. I want to, I want to be of service. I really do. And I feel lit up, and I feel closest to God when I'm doing that. But I can't can do I it ask if you it this doesn't feel good. Can I ask you this though? Cause I, and I just, I'm genuinely asking, but is this is like, say like the Nat ministry and all the people who have this platform is not rest and leisure part of the work. I just, cause I actually think that like we even like leisure, we've, it's like we put it on the side as frivolous, but like, isn't that part of the work? Yeah. Well, I mean, we haven't defined what I'm saying when I'm saying leisure, I'm saying, yeah, okay. I'm saying when I'm, yeah, I'm saying when I'm, I'm saying stuff that does not feel productive to me. I mean, you know, I Got practice it. yoga all the yeah. time. You know, I go for walks yeah. all the time. I host dinner parties. I cook. I just went and bought some, some um, mango, pineapple, and I was making a fruit set. Like I do that sort of stuff because I feel like we have to be lifestyle activists when our, when our culture has been stolen from us. I am just right. suggesting that there was a fervor that Fannie Lou Hamer had that I mm-hmm. deeply respect that I deeply, deeply respect. And at the same time, she was on the road. She probably wasn't eating right. She got terrible health care. I mean, she was, she she was terrorized. You understand what I mean? So I'm saying like, there were, she had chronic stress. There are reasons why she died early and prematurely. I don't think it's because she had the fervor of God on her that she died prematurely or that she, she worked too hard for her people. I don't actually believe that. So I'm trying to balance mm-hmm. it out. I appreciate actually your pushback. I'm trying to balance it out because um, I want to make sure the narrative is right is right in my head. Uh-oh. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's sparkly over I'm there. I'm here. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'd love to hear from you on um, on Twitter. It's it's a hard subject. One of the things it that is, um, yeah. I'll leave you with this before we. I, I really want to listen to the full eight minutes of her testimony, and I'll leave you. I'll leave you with this. Vanessa and I and our entire staff and a bunch of organizers from the South went to Fannie Lou Hamer's um, hometown, which is Ruleville, Mississippi, in 2017, uh, which would have been her one, October 6, 2017, which would have been her 100th birthday. And we went and we laid flowers at her grave and we walked through her town and we tried to be of service. Um, and we had the opportunity to meet one of her daughters. And it was shocking to me because her daughter was so wonderful and warm but she was still working so hard Vanessa she you weren't there with me and Opa she she was in she was in like the city council office in the middle of town it was a tiny little office next to the police precinct and she was printing out electricity bills for people in the community and it they had this old printer and she was wrestling with the printer and we came in and I didn't know who she was and I was just trying to be polite and she told me who she was and I asked her I could give her a hug and she was uncomfortable but but delighted and happy we were honoring her mother I mean and it made me really really sad that um that one her city is in such abject poverty still I mean, check cashing places, um, liquor store. I mean, just and like no porches, no infrastructure. It, Ruleville is still really, really impoverished. And, um, and her family still really needs um, our, our nation's support. And we went to the memorial where she's buried and the beautiful woman there who's caring for it was saying that they have to raise money to cut the grass. 
And I was shocked that it wasn't a part of the national park system. I was shocked that we didn't know about it. And so Vanessa and I there. Here's what's more shocking, Morgan. Sure that, as we're having Morgan, yeah. as we're having this conversation, by the way, around the monuments in this country and the, and and taking them down, not taking them down. Just know that we're there. That they have to raise money to cut the grass at Fannie Lou Hamer's burial site. So actually, when we there's plenty the resources that we're talking about, we have in this country to uphold monuments to people who we shouldn't be celebrating. Meanwhile, the real heroes of our country, um, their birthplaces and their birth homes and their places of work and the places we should be preserving are crumbling before our eyes. Yeah. So I want to make a promise to, to anybody listening to this. Please share Black History Boot Camp with everybody you know. Let's try and get as many Black women before this election to start walking and talking together and collectively organizing. And let's learn where our ancestors have brought us, right? So share today's email or any of your favorite photos from Black History Boot Camp today. And every registers for Black History Boot Camp today, Girl Trek will give $1 to go and preserve the monument to Fannie Lou Hamer in Ruleville, Mississippi. So please, please, please share out widely, widely for people to join blackhistorybootcamp.com so that we can do this and honor her legacy. Um, without further ado, I'll send an email out a little bit about it. Um, just congratulating you on week one and giving you some language to invite people to help us preserve Fannie Lou Hamer's legacy. We love you all. Let's uh, start the words of our dearest Fannie Lou Hamer. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Ruseville, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stennis. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Roosevelt, we were held up by the city police and the state highway patrolmen and carried back to Indianola, where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, we continued on to Roosevelt and Reverend Jeff Sonny carried me four miles in the rural area where I had worked as a timekeeper and sharecropper for 18 years. I was met there by my children that told me the plantation owner was angry because I had gone down, tried to register. After they told me, my husband came and said the plantation owner was raising cane because I had tried to register. And before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, do you know, did Pap tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I mean that, said, if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, 
you will have to leave. That then if you go down and withdraw, that you still might have to go because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him that I didn't try to register for you. I tried to register for myself. I had to leave that same night. On the 10th of September, 1962, 16 bullets were fired into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Tucker for me. That same night, two girls were shot in Roosevelt, Mississippi. Also, Mr. Joe McDonald's house was shot in. In June the 9th, 1963, I had attended a voter registration workshop was returning back to Mississippi. Ten of us was traveling by the Continental Little Trailway bus. When we got to Winona, Mississippi, which is Montgomery County, four of the people got off to use the washroom. And two of the people, to use the restaurant, two of the people wanted to use the washroom. The four people that had gone in to use the restaurant was ordered out during this time I was on the bus. But when I looked through the window and saw they had rushed out, I got off of the bus to see what had happened. And one of the ladies said it was a state highway patrolman and a chief of police ordered us out. I got back on the bus and one of the persons who had used the washroom got back on the bus too. As soon as I was seated on the bus, I saw when they began to get the five people in a highway patrolman's car. I stepped off of the bus to see what was happening, and somebody screamed from the car that the fire workers was in and said, get that one there. And when I went to get in the car, when the man told me I was under arrest, he kicked me. I was carried to the county jail and put in the booking room. They left some of the people in the booking room and began to place us in cells. I was placed in a cell with a young woman called Miss Vesta Simpson. After I was placed in the cell, I began to hear sounds of licks and screams. I could hear the sounds of licks and horrible screams. And I could hear somebody say, can you say yes, sir, nigger? Can you say yes, sir? And they would say other horrible names. She would say, yes, I can say yes, sir. So I said, she said, I don't know you well enough. They beat her, I don't know how long. And after a while, she began to pray and ask God to have mercy on those people. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman, and he asked me where I was from. And I told him, Roosevelt. He said, we are going to check this. And they left my cell, and it wasn't too long before they came back. He said, you are from Roosevelt, all right, and he used the curse word. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. I was carried out of that cell into another cell where they had Two Negro prisoners, the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me 
by orders from the state highway patrolman for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. And I laid on my face, the first Negro began to beat. And I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I was holding my hands behind me at that time on my left side because I suffered from polio when I was six years old. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat and I began to work my feet. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro had beat to sit on my feet, to keep me from working my feet. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress, I pulled my dress down, and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Matthew Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register, to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America? the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you.